Welcome to The Rice Life, a podcast by Rice Extension, where we aim to bring you the latest R&D information for rice-based farming systems, industry news and answer your question. Like each week, you're joined by myself, Charlie, and Harriet. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for tuning in to listen to our third episode of our podcast. And Charlie, we've had great reception to our podcast over the last few weeks, and we've received lots of support from our rice growers. So we're starting today's episode with a grower question that we've received, which is, what's been the highest yield to come in so far? So, so far this season, we've seen yields averaging that 5 to 8% above the five-year average, but the highest yield has been seen in the MIA with the Rizik crop averaging over 15 tonnes, which is just amazing. Yeah, that's a huge, absolutely huge crop. Yeah, so the highest yield will be announced, fingers crossed, that restrictions are lifted, but at the RGA conference or RGA AGM dinner later in the year. So stay tuned for more details. So today's episode is all about the intertwining world of rice, wildlife and the environment. For this episode, we caught up with none other than ecologist Matt Herring, who has worked closely with rice girls for many years. We're excited to bring you our catch up with Matt today as we talk all things about the Australasian bittern, rice ecosystems and other exciting work that Matt's doing. In particular, we wanted to find out from Matt more about the local land services incentive program called Growing Bitten Friendly Rice, which he's been involved in this year. And this recognises the importance of rice fields for the breeding of the Australasian bittern So the program has a three-level approach with a dollar per hectare rate offered depending on the number of activities to be undertaken and the date of inundation and drainage of your rice crop. In this episode, you'll also hear from Hayden Cudmore, a rice grower near Griffith who participated in the Bitten Friendly Rice Program. I asked Hayden how he found the experience and what changes he made to his management. And joining us today on the rice wrap-up is agronomist James Mann from Yenda Producers, who will give us an update about winter cereals. To kick off, we start with Charlie's catch up with Matt. We hope you enjoy. Matt, thanks for joining me this morning. No worries. Happy to be here, Charlie. Matt, you're very passionate about the environment, wildlife, and of course, as our listeners would know, the Australasian bitten. Can you give us a brief background about yourself and how you became involved in the rice industry? Uh, look, I think I think it probably all began in the late. 1990s for me. I was living in Albury, Wodonga, and I became really interested in the Brolga population to the west, uh, you know, towards Finlay and and Deneloquin and so on. And I guess that it was then when I first started working on um, rice farms. And, and through that um, project with Charles Sturt, University, it was my honours. Uh, it really taught me that um, you know landholders can be vital for wildlife conservation, and yeah, rather rather than being the enemy, they're uh, you know a crucial part of the of the solution to um, uh, to threatened species. Sounds like you've definitely had a long running relationship with the rice industry, and I guess in the ecosystem area. So you started probably, I think it's seven or eight years ago, doing some work with Neil Bull about bittens. And this year it's evolved into bitten-friendly rice. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the program that you're doing with the Riverina LLS? 
Sure. Look, um, you're right. It's This is the first season that we've been able to offer formal incentives. And so it's funded through the Australian government's National Land Care Program and uh, and being run by Riverina LLS, but certainly, you know, um, supported strongly by uh, the Rice Growers Association of Australia and BirdLife Australia and other organisations. And it's really good that instead of relying solely on a grower's goodwill um, to apply these um, bitten-friendly rice-growing um, tips, if you like, um, that, yeah, instead of relying on, on their goodwill, um, that we now actually have um, some sort of financial incentive, uh, you know, ba basically to reward a rice grower for better accommodating bitterns in their crop. What does the program involve in terms of the role that you play in it? All, all rice crops in the Riverina provide habitat for Australasian bitterns. They all have value for them, but the, the key part um, to their uh, breeding success is having crops where uh, early permanent water has been used. And, and this used to be um, the, the most common way of growing rice as recently as, you know, five or six years ago. And so if you get that water on early in the season, like in October, and make sure that there's a sufficient uh, ponding period uh, so that the birds can breed successfully before harvest, then, then you know, that that is bitten-friendly rice. And there's a bunch of other things in the program like fox control and maintaining grassy banks um, around the rice uh, paddocks and also having adjacent habitat in uh, in channels or storage dams, that all um, adds up. And my role, uh, Charlie, has has been monitoring it all. So looking at um, the response of the bitterns uh, to the incentive sites, and uh, and then we make comparisons with uh, with control sites. It's a whole farm system approach that people have got to take in growing bitten-friendly rice in terms of it's not just the rice crop, like it's that surrounding paddock environment that's also really important. Um, Absolutely, yes. How many farmers did you have this year do the program? We managed to find six growers that could meet the criteria. There's three different levels and you get, uh, you basically get um, a higher rate for, for meeting more stringent criteria, but there were six in total that could meet um, uh, the the criteria and that was a total of 279 hectares and we were really happy with that Charlie because it was such a well and I should say another terrible season with low you know record low water allocations and the drought and so we we're really happy that um, instead of postponing the program that we could actually go ahead with it so we had 279 hectares and then we compared the results uh, with the bitterns there um, to 308 hectares of rice that had, uh, you know, delayed permanent water, direct drill, um, that sort of thing. 
So of that almost 270 hectares, how many bitten sightings did you see and was there any breeding across the season? Yeah, yeah, there was. It was a really odd season, Charlie. For the first time in eight years, at at, um, the start of January, there was no booming. So the males make this really big booming sound during the breeding season and that's the link to the bunyip, you know, the sound of the bunyip that uh, Indigenous people have been, you know, making stories about for thousands of years. Um, yeah, so it was a really odd start and, and it was true in natural wetlands. Like around Leeton, there's a really good uh, um, wetland called Five Bow Swamp. It's a Ramsar site. And uh, even, even there, there was no booming um, this season. So it was an odd start, but we did eventually find um, a nest with four chicks at one of the bitten-friendly sites um, out near Griffith. So that was really, really good. And the numbers overall, Charlie, this is a really great result. It was such a relief. We found um, four times as many bitterns. Uh, at the incentive sites compared to the control site. So we're really happy with that. We're, we're clearly on the right track. You know, we might tweak the incentives as time goes on and as we fully develop the program, but it was such a relief to know that we're on the right track. You know, the, the bittens don't lie. The, the results don't lie. <laughs> That's such an amazing result to know that there's four times as many bittens in the paddocks in which the farmers had, you know, I guess changed their management strategies and the way that they were growing grass so that it's encouraging bittens to live there. Um, what is it about a rice field that is so attractive for a bitten to want to make it their home? Yeah, it's a great, really great question. Um, you know, essentially the management of a rice crop mimics what happens in a natural swamp and that's what the bitterns are used to. That's what they've evolved with for many, many thousands of years and so it's basically an ephemeral wetland, you know, a temporary wetland um, and the, the sort of ecological processes are, um, you know, the successional, we call them successional processes are restarted every year because of drying and harvest and then flooding and sowing. And so they basically function like uh, an ephemeral swamp and and the cover is um, enough for them to hide in. They're a bird that loves hiding. There's enough material in there for them to build their nest and crucially there's enough prey in there um, things like the frogs and tadpoles, um, carp, dragonfly, larvae, yabbies, all that sort of stuff. There's enough for them to, to sustain themselves as well as raise their chicks. Yeah, okay. So RAS provides that perfect kind of imitation wetland for them to, I guess, thrive and survive in Australia. Because bitterns are so attracted to the rice, and this is the first year in your project, how many more years of funding has your project received? The, the funding for the incentives, this is only I'm our sorry, first... incentives, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the first year. Um, so we've got three more years to go. And look, eventually, uh, you know, we're really grateful for that um, 
funding, Charlie, because uh, it's formal recognition from the federal government that uh, rice fields have really significant habitat values. I mean, this is one of the world's most threatened water birds and, uh, you know, a very large proportion of the population depends on the Riverina's rice fields and the federal government has acknowledged that and supported the program with funding. But ultimately, um, don't you think it would be great to see the consumer, um, you know, offset the costs, um, the additional costs to growers by paying more for their rice at the supermarket. That's that's what I'm inspired by, consumer-funded, wildlife-friendly farming. And, and look, the key, the key point too is that um, government funding comes and goes. You know, their priorities change, the, the, the way they deliver programs change. Like even in my short career, I've seen cycles of, of you know, the focus on threatened species to then the, th the focus on broader ecosystems. And so, the, you know, the poor old bitten um, can't be at the mercy of government funding cycles and, and really to make it the whole thing, the whole approach to bitten-friendly rice farming more sustainable is to, um, is to put it in the marketplace and, and, uh, and get some loyal customers. It would be nice to think that it becomes part of, you know, everyday life for the consumers that, they're out there and they're no longer willing to buy products that aren't bitten friendly. Maybe that's where the future of Sunrise will head. Who would know? Yes. Yes. Who knows? <laughs> um, you've recently done some videos about the Australasian bitten with Sunrise and you are very passionate about the consumer obviously taking charge in this space. But why is it so important? I mean, to you especially to share that message with the broader public. Oh, look, I think there's, there's a bunch of things there, Charlie. Um, first is that a lot of modern people living in cities especially are really out of touch with where their food comes from. The extreme example people use is, you know, a kid in the supermarket um, makes no connection between a cow, uh, you know, a dairy cow and the milk that they are. Their, their dad or, or mum is buying and so that that disconnection between the food and the land that sustains them and their everyday life is just uh, you know a terrible thing and so um, the bittens in rice story um, I think helps reconnect people to, to where their food is from and the other like one of the other really important things I like Charlie is that it it sort of demonstrates to everyone involved, the consumer, uh, the farmer, uh, the researcher, um, the media, everyone, that farming is so much more than just food production. Um, you know, these, these rice growers out in the Riverina are custodians of, um, you know, 40% of this globally endangered species. And a whole bunch of other wildlife species. I mean, anyone that's spent time around rice has seen all the the ibis and herons and egrets and spoonbills and heard all the frogs and so on. And so it just really illustrates that 
that farming is about so much more than food production and making money. It's about managing land and providing habitat and, and lots of other sort of, you know, what, what are often called ecosystem services. So I, I like that it that our project um, taps into that that bigger picture of, of what farmers do. I guess the project's really closing the circle in some kind of aspect about that farmers aren't just food producers, you know, that there's a whole other environment out here and that they are looking after it, I guess, in a sense. I mean, like my parents grow rice and obviously we didn't grow rice this year because of the lack of water, but you definitely miss in the summer evenings, you know, the sounds of the frogs and the different insects that would normally be in the rice fields because you've created this environment for them to live in. So I think that the work, like the work that you're doing on this project, bridging that gap is definitely something that hopefully the whole world really wants to learn about and educate themselves about what farmers do and that, you know, food production doesn't just come from the supermarket would be nice. Absolutely. And I guess the thing with, um, with, uh, water resource management in the Murray-Darling Basin, it's very contentious and polarizing. And I've had people come up to me after talks in Canberra or, um, Sydney or Melbourne and say, I can't believe it. You know, my, my whole view of a a rice farmer as an irrigator has changed. Instead of being an environmental vandal, here they are, um, you know, as a supporter of um, threatened species conservation. So what you say is spot on, Charlie, and I think even more um, pronounced uh, with with irrigation in the Murray-Darling Basin. You know, they're part of the solution with the, with the wildlife issues that we have with you know, potential extinction of a whole lot of species. Um, you know, they're part of the, they can be part of the solution rather than uh, the enemy. You have spent the past, I think, roughly about 20 years working in this environment as an ecologist. Um, what does the future look like for Matt? The future for me? Um, yeah. Well, I... I'm certainly going to stick with this stuff, the bittens in the rice, and I find it uh, it really inspiring because it taps into bigger, broader issues uh, that are really important for humans and life on Earth. Um, the bittern is, how do I put it? It's like a poster child for for. Uh, for wildlife in rice, there's so much more that we can do in the future. Um, potentially, rice crops can be managed, uh, you know, tweaked. Their management can be tweaked, um, you know, for a whole bunch of other important species, like in the Colliambly area and also in the western Murray Valley, there's really important populations of the southern bellfrog. And so there will be things that we can do, like, like for example, having deeper um, semi-permanent uh, ponds adjacent to rice fields can help maintain those populations when the crops are drained or between uh, rice seasons. Um, and I'm really interested in this rice fish 
and rice fish duck and even rice turtle um, farming systems that I've been reading about in, uh, in Asia. Um, that stuff really interests me for, for the future. Charlie, I think there's a lot we can learn from, you know, places like China that have been farming rice for thousands of years in, in a much more um, self-sustaining system, like a low input um, system, you know, where, where for example, the, the fish are for helping to fertilize the crop and the, the ducks are controlling certain weeds. Applying that sort of stuff here in Australia will be very challenging, but, uh, but worth pursuing, I think. All right. Well, thank you, Matt, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed catching up and hearing about the projects that you're working on. Um, for anyone who is interested in more of Matt's work, Harriet and I will put the details in our show notes. But thank you so much, Matt, for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Anytime, Charlie. Hi, Hayden. Thanks so much for joining us today. No worries, Harriet. So you run a farming operation near Griffith, and this year you were one of six growers who participated in the Bitten Friendly Rice Initiative. Can you tell us a bit about this? Okay, so the incentive is based around a checklist of criteria which makes my rice crop attractive for the Bittens. So if you achieve certain benchmarks, a certain tier of payments met. So there's about three levels to those tiers, and I achieved the middle level this year, level two. So why did you decide to be involved? Um, I've known Matt Herring for quite a few years um, and my participation at the Rice Growers Association. So, yeah, um, Matt has always been enthusiastic about bitterns and wildlife, of course. So um, he was able to join all the dots or most of the dots for me for, for the bitten because it's... Um, the bittern has always been present in our rice crops, but because of its secretive life, it's been really difficult to get close to and try and understand in any detail. So Matt was able to give a really clear picture about uh, the life cycle of the bitterns. And what was your bitten yield this year? Um, at least two, if not three, or maybe more. I'm just not sure. I'd have to catch up with Matt just to confirm what he had found. But um, yeah, they were definitely there this year. And uh, although they were quite... They weren't as vocal as, you know, past years, so they were there, but a, a little bit more quiet than normal. So were there any differences in your management practices compared to previous seasons? No, very little change. Um, just a few things to make it a bit more conducive for the, for the bitterns, but yeah, n not, a, not, a great, not a great deal of change. So what were those few little changes? So... Allowing the banks and the and the verges of the paddock to grow grow out into weeds, um, which isn't hard around here, can be a little inconvenient. Closing uh, harvesting so close to the to the rice banks when you're harvesting, but it's not not that big a deal. So and just had to be conscious of um, of pets uh, because of the baiting, but um, otherwise it was very easy to comply with. Yeah, baiting for predators like foxes is such an integral part of the um, of the project. So it's yeah, definitely a good reminder to growers out there that they will have to uh, undergo a fair bit of baiting. So if they do have dogs, it's just another consideration that they'll have to take on board. 
but good to know it's pretty easy to comply with otherwise. And did you see a yield decrease by growing bittern-friendly rice? No, not at all. That's the great thing about bitterns. Unlike some other wildlife, there's no yield impact on on uh, on our rice crop. Um, you know, there's relatively few birds. So, you know, two, three, four, five birds is, uh, and they're really, you know, very quiet birds. So, you know, there's no damage at all. There's no no reduction in yield. And now you've completed the program, is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, well, I would have loved to have had more rice. It was just a low water availability year. Um, and, yeah, with more rice, I've no doubt I would have had more bitterns. Oh, excellent. And would you recommend this program to other growers? Or do you have any tips for growers that might look to become part of the project next season? Yeah, look, it's a fantastic project to be involved in. It gives a great insight into the environmental possibilities and understanding that purely a financial bottom line isn't necessarily the only thing uh, that we go farming for. And what's your favourite part about being involved? Um, sharing the stories of the bittens in my rice um, and knowing that what I do as a rice grower is attractive to the bittens for habitat. The bittens chose my rice field to call home for a while and you know hopefully make babies uh, hopefully i'm playing my small part ensuring the bitten survival no definitely and any other wildlife that you observed in your rice crop this year yeah so lots of uh, frogs small fish yabbies and other birds um, i also had some army worms visit during december which attracted um, hundreds of ibis so glossy and black ibis but um, they eventually moved on no great well thanks so much for joining me today yeah. Really appreciate it. No worries at all, Harriet. Are you interested in finding more out about Hayden Cudmore's rice? Head over to Sunrise's sustainability website where Hayden was interviewed about why he loves rice and the roles of bitterns in his farming system. And now it's time for the rice wrap-up, where we give you a quick update from across the rice-growing regions, from the Murray to the Murrumbidgee. This week we have agronomist James Mann from Yenda Producers, based in Yenda, and he's going to give us an update about winter cereals. Just want to start, give us a bit of background about yourself and how long you've been at the Prods. Yeah, so I started back in 2013, so uh, it'd be about seven years now. Um, been based out of Yenda the whole time, working around um, drying out towards Rankin Springs, Borellan and mainly around Wajeli and Yenda irrigation areas. Is <clears throat> chemical shortage still an issue? Um, not as much as what it was probably a, a month ago. We seem to have gotten through okay and we're, pressure's just starting to ease off now Now that a lot of um, knockdown sprays have, have been done. Um, we're getting a bit more supply coming now at the end of May, um, which was forecasted. There was, yeah, everything was kind of pushed back. So yeah, uh, late of May... Um, glyphosates and paraquats are starting to come in now. Um, I guess some of the larger packs with gramoxone is still a bit of an issue, but we seem to be getting through okay. Um, for our post stem stuff, where yeah, in the next few weeks we should see some of that start to trickle in. But yeah, um, yeah, we look like starting to ease. The pressure starting to ease a bit now as we move forward. Yep, no, it's good to know. And what sort of crops are in this winter? Like, what's is there sort of a breakdown you can give us? Um, yeah, the majority would be wheat. Um, not much barley on the irrigation this year. Um, a lot of growers, I guess, are probably knocking their sowing rates back 
Um, not real sure and confident on what's going to happen with water. So, um, yeah, leaving their options open. Don't want to say too heavy. Have too thicky crops in case they um, don't want to water them out. And with a bit of optimism around rice, um, yeah, look, look to be uh, saving their water for that. Um, guys that <clears throat> generally go canola uh, have stuck to their, their uh, programs, I guess. They're still in. And, yeah, the odd paddock of barley, but I guess when you move out towards the, the dryland guys, they've kind of, yeah, haven't really knocked any paddocks out. It's probably a bit late with the uh, news coming from China. So, yeah, basically most guys have stuck to their plans that, in terms of that. But, <clears throat> yeah, on the irrigation, definitely most mostly wheat. Um, a lot of forage um, and pastures in this year, obviously with the early break, um, which, yeah, they look fantastic. Unfortunately, probably don't have enough livestock for the amount of feed we got which is an unusual problem but um a good problem to have yeah a lot of grazing variety so a lot of grazing wheat a lot of um other uh, grazing canolas or forage brassicas are in this year um which are looking fantastic no that's good so uh what about like the cereals how's their establishment looking yeah the majority's pretty good there was the odd um uh, following that 60, 60, 70 mils of rain, depending on where we were at the start of the month, uh, end of April, um, guys that so just before that got waterlogged or had water laying for a few days. Um, yeah, we had a few paddocks there that, that failed and would need to be re-sown. Um, yeah, especially any on that, uh, that heavier type of soils. Um, yeah, it wasn't so much crossing, it was just yeah, a, bit, a bit of crossing, but mainly, um, mainly just that so much rain and just couldn't get it off paddocks quick enough. Um, besides that, we've had, yeah, with warm temperatures, quite quite good um, establishment. A lot of crops bounced out of ground, especially those ones sown that last week of April. Um, a lot of the cereals there, those earlier sown varieties have, um, yeah, really powered away and looking good, looking really good. Yeah, that's good to hear. And any pest or disease issues that you've come across? Um, not much in terms of disease at the moment. Um, yeah, there has been a few insects in canola. We've seen, um, yeah, the odd little bit of um, lucent flea and um, some red legs, mainly where there's uh, pasture in the in the uh, program coming out of those. They're my neighbouring paddocks, but yeah, you know, in terms of um, in terms of cereals, not so much. A lot of a lot of seed is treated these days for aphids. Um, with the way Russian wheat aphid came in there a few years ago, so we're pretty lucky with that. But um, we did a lot of the, or a fair bit of the um, forage brassicas and grazing canolas did have um, some cabbage center grub early on, which um, some people did control with insecticides and some didn't, but they seem to have um, disappeared now with the cooler weather, so yeah. Um, no, that's good. Um, and what sort of things should growers be thinking about or planning for in the next couple of weeks? I uh, guess just monitoring how the season starts shaping up, I guess, um, depending on rainfall and where they want to take their crops, I guess, whether they want to start putting urea out. Um, if they want to take it through, got to look at it that way, depending on the way they've set the, the crop up. Yeah, I think... I don't think many people put any nitrogen up front, so if they are going to carry it through, it's probably, you know, the next month or so, we start putting some urea out. But, yeah, keeping um, 
definitely keeping um, keeping them clean. There's broadleaf starting to come up now, and a few grasses. We got a pretty good kill on ryegrass, but um, generally, the later the season goes, we get more black oats and phalaris. So expect those to start popping through in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of that, just yeah, trying to keep them clean and give them the best chance come the end of the end of the season. And obviously, our fallows for summer crop, just making sure they stay clean. We know from probably 2016 when the ryegrass got away, became um, very hard to control, especially with gloffs at resistance these days. So, so final question. Just keeping that in mind, what especially most guys left a couple of packs out hoping to put it in Yeah, most of them are pretty optimistic, actually. Um, as I said, they've left a couple of paddocks out to uh, they've planned for rice. And obviously the hard part, not knowing um, what the price of water's going to be, what... Um, what rice is actually going to be per tonne. They can't really plan on whether they're going to irrigate wheat out. So most guys have said have scratched some wheat in. And hopefully it stays wet like this. Um, we get some allocation, get some water into the dams, and we'll look to at least put those paddocks in. And if um, if push comes to shove, they're happy to, to spray a wheat crop out and, and put some uh, rice in. Um, the returns per mega are obviously better, but we just we don't have that price at the moment to... Um, to run any budgets on, which is a bit of a bummer. I think um, last year some growers decided to water wheat um, before the price came out, and yeah, obviously would use that water to to grow rice. But unfortunately, once you start watering wheat, you can't use that water and you can't take it off and put it back to rice. So hopefully, we get a price soon to give us give us an idea on what we're going to do over the next few months, and even help us plan our our winter crops, whether we stick with them or yeah, which way we go. Yeah, no, definitely. It's good to know that the optimism is out there. Thanks for listening in. We want to know your issues and create a forum via our podcast to have an interactive discussion on all things rice and rice farming systems. Please send in questions you would like answered and or suggest a topic for our discussions. You can do this by getting in touch via our email, which is extension at rga.org.au or tweet or Facebook message us at Rice Extension. Good luck with harvest and we will look forward to seeing you in two weeks on Thursday the 4th of June. Until then, have a rice day.